0: Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there.
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood f. so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Happy Mom, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is a baroness. She's a parliamentarian, a crossbencher at the House of Lords. She's also a former wheelchair racer and a Paralympian. Uh, I've got to read this out because when I read this, I was like, wow, having been in the castle with two athletes, this is amazing. Uh, So in her Paralympic career, she won 16 medals, 11 gold, four silver and a bronze, and also 13 World Championship medals, six gold, five silver and two bronze. And over her career, she held 30 records and won the London Marathon six times. Not only that, (laughs) she has a daughter who has just started uni. Um, So today's guest, I'd like to welcome Baroness. I have to say Baroness because when else will I ever get the chance? Baroness Tani Grey-Thompson. Hello. Hello. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you. But you know what, sometimes I really breeze over the introductions and I'm like, yeah, this person's great and whatever. But I, reading through what you have achieved in your career, you know, to do one thing and to do that well, to, to be an athlete and to to do all the things that you've achieved and then to be in Parliament and, and politics in the way that you have. And you've kind of gone full circle as well because you studied politics at uni. Yeah, I
4: did. Well, actually, I wanted to study history, but I also really, really, really wanted to go to Loughborough and uh, I I got a place. It's always pla- about the place. It is and I, I got a place there and then just before I was due to go they shut the history course down and they said look we'll transfer your offer to another similar course. So uh, it, it was in the days where you got like a, a prospectus and I remember being sort of panicking about you know oh, I might not end up at Loughborough and looking through and thinking oh pol- well actually the politics course is really similar. Um, so I, I transferred to that and I do remember very grandly saying to my head of department just before I graduated, I am never going to go into politics because that's for losers. And and then sort of 20 years after that, I ended up in the House of Lords and, and lots of friends from uni sending me messages going, ha-ha, loser. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was an amazing time to study politics because I was doing German politics the year the wall came down and literally our course just got, you know, chucked in the bin and you know doing South African politics when Mandela walked and so it was a, a really fascinating time to be studying politics.
0: Wow. Um, we actually kick off the majority of the podcasts by asking people about their upbringing. So how what happened before Loughborough how did you like where did you grow up what was family life like?
4: So I was born and brought up in Cardiff. I've got an older sister called Sian, Um, She's about 18 months older than me. She's responsible for my unusual name because uh, <laughs> she didn't like the name I was christened. And my parents had been congratulating themselves on what amazing parents they were because they had such a well-balanced sort of toddler who was very excited about a new baby and not showing any signs <laughs> of jealousy until I came home from hospital. And she'd assumed that I was going to be a baby her size to play with. And apparently she stood next to my crib and just went, ugh, it's tiny. And, (laughs) and stood there going, it's tiny, it's tiny, it's tiny, it's tiny, it's tiny, tiny. And whenever they tried to get her to call me, the name I was christened, which was Karis. Um, she screamed the house down. And so after about three days, my parents just went, we'll change your name. (laughs) Um, and then my daughter's called Caris because it was the only Welsh name my English husband could say. So, um, <laughs> uh, and also it's a nice name. So it's nice to be love- used by someone. It means it kind of means beloved child or love. It comes from Cariad. So it it is good. But um, yeah, so it's my sister's fault for my name. And yeah, I was born with spina bifida. Could walk a little bit when I started school, but then sometime around the age of sort of. Four, five, I started struggling walking, and then by the age of six-ish, I was paralyzed uh, right. and a wheelchair user. But I didn't miss a day of school. You know, there wasn't any pain. It it just gradually sort of happened. So for me, it wasn't a big transformation at all. And also because my parents were just really cool about it. You know, they just, my parents fought really hard for me to have a wheelchair because that was the way they felt I could be mobile as opposed to trying to wear callipers and crutches and not be able to do anything. So um, it, it kind of was... It was only probably when I was about 10, 11 that I started realising that people would treat me differently because I was disabled. Um, mm. and saying that, and I I was actually... I think I was five when the first person stopped me in the street and asked me why my parents hadn't aborted me. And then having to go, having to have a conversation with mum saying, what's abortion? And her sitting down and talking about it and explaining it. So I think there were some things that happened that... I had lots of experiences at a young age, which mm. you might not want for your child, but my parents were really open about talking about those things with me so that I understood what was was
0: going on. And they, they were told a lot, from what I've read, they were told a lot about all the things that you wouldn't be able to do.
4: Yeah, I mean, from the point I started using a wheelchair, you know, complete strangers would tell my parents, you know, I'd never get a job, I'd never get married, I'd never have kids, um, and... Apparently, when I was born, the only question my mum asked was, can she have children? She didn't ask anything about spina bifida. And the doctor just said, I don't know. So they went, "Okay," and went home. Um, And and I wasn't ill. I mean, I think that's the difference. I wasn't ill. I was disabled. And and they're quite different things.
0: Mm. How did you go from literally starting to sit in a wheelchair at six to becoming a wheelchair racer? Because there's also that that thing as a parent as well of the safety and suddenly... Your child is racing in their wheelchair. What is that leap? So apparently I was quite an annoying child. I can't possibly imagine that. Um,
4: <laughs> a lot of energy, you know, start talking from the minute I wake up till the minute I go to bed. So my parents thought sport would be good for me to calm me down and give me some focus. I've got a child like that. <laughs> yeah, And I'm, I'm, I'm very competitive. Actually, in retirement, I've, I'm, I'm much more laid back. But I'd I'd have had a race over putting my socks on if I thought I could win. And (laughs) um, sport was just that natural outlet. And and also the other bit of it was that, um, you know, to be physically fit and strong, to push my chair around, to transfer. You know, my parents refused to make a house wheelchair accessible. So I used to crawl up and down the stairs to go to bed. Um, uh, Sport kind of really helped. It was kind of like rehab and, you know, physio, but in a much more fun environment. And then... I do my dad was an architect as well, so I mean, he knew how inaccessible the world was, and he he never mm. wanted to make our house the only place that I could live, and he also didn't really want, when him and mum weren't around anymore, they didn't want the responsibility for looking after me to be with Wishart, with so there were lots of things going on there, which I only kind of found out about much later, but I, I do remember, dad had this book, and it had pictures of the Taj Mahal and the Sydney Opera House, and he sat me down and he told me the world was an amazing place and I needed to travel and to do that I needed a good job and to do that I needed an education. And, and that was amazing for me at quite a young age. And so that was sort of instilled in me. And then he was in hospital, he wasn't very well and we knew he didn't have much time left. And I said to him, oh, do you remember that conversation? Because that was life-changing for me. And I remember him of going, no, don't remember it. Okay, thanks, Dad. Um, and then a bit later, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember it. You know, your mum and I just didn't want you living at home forever. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> so um, there were lots of things beneath me competing in sport that were really helpful. And then I just loved sport, and I I was one of those really enthusiastic children, didn't necessarily show a lot of talent in anything. I mean, I think my mum said the highlight of my swimming career is I failed to drown, just so... Um, Yeah, it it was about the age of 12 that I started doing wheelchair racing and that was it. From the minute I did that, that was all I wanted to do because it was fun and it was exciting and it was quick and I just loved the speed. And also I remember watching the London Marathon on TV and watching a Welsh athlete called Chris Hallam win it, a wheelchair athlete, and thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the London Marathon one day. So that was a big part of it. To be on the start line for London, you actually got to do quite a lot of training
0: but, I mean, that's that's one thing watching it and going, oh, I'm going to do that one day. But then winning it, winning it six times, that's mind-blowing that someone can just watch it and kind of go, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then to put the dedication the time the focus in and then bosh your way through to the, to the winning place six times. That's incredible.
4: You know, you don't suddenly start training 12 times a week. It sort of built up over a period of years and you make yeah. each little setup. up. And, and then for me, it was always about looking forward. And the thing you know dad and mum said to me you have this limited time in sport so you have to make the most of it because you might never make a team or you might never you know get to do the things you want so put your energies into the here and now because you know in sport by the time you hit 30 you can be pretty much broken so you know you you've you've got to make the the most of it and i think that was probably one of the most important lessons the thing that dad was really keen on was Um, not just winning because I didn't win a race for the first five years I competed but it was did you compete well were you the best you could be and whatever I won or if I broke a world record dad would say to me "Well, did you perform well and if I hadn't he'd be like well that's lovely but it doesn't matter as much so I think for me it was always that kind of balance of lots of different things I mean the, the reality is the medals are the ones that people remember they don't remember all the races I lost and I lost quite a lot but there's bits in sport where trying to get as close to perfection as you can is really rewarding. It's really... That's mm. a really good... That's the only bit I miss about sport. I don't miss the training. I don't miss the travelling. I miss some of the people. But that moment when you time a
0: race to perfection, that is an amazing feeling. Yeah. With all that going on with your career, at some point you meet Ian, mm. who was also an athlete. Am I right? He was. So actually I met
4: him when I was 17 uh, and I was just going off to Loughborough and he was just starting his PhD in chemistry and he was at Manchester. And his opening line to me was, um, oh, I hear you're going to that PE college. So I don't think I spoke to him for several years, to be honest. Um, (laughs) And then he kind of grew on me over a period of time. And we kind of joke about it. But, you know, my, my biggest thing in my career, I wanted to beat him. And it's really easy in sport to become really focused on different women, what other people are doing. And you can't yeah. do you you need to know what other people are doing, but you can't control decisions they make in races or training or selection or anything like that. So he competed at two Paralympics. And I, I spent most of my career trying to beat him. I never days. But um <laughs> I think that's that's the other thing that made me good as an athlete: was that I knew if I could get close to him, I'd be good. And then I remember just before Sydney, so my fourth games. And I was pushing really quick, really, really quick. And we'd gone out to do a training session and he knew I was pushing fast. We were doing this downhill session and he sat alongside me in his racing chair, put one hand on his steering, kept up with me and just pushed with one hand. And I remember just thinking, I hate you, I hate you. (laughs) And in them saying, yeah, yeah, you're pushing quick, but I can still push quicker. And you go, right. But it was, it was actually a really positive relationship and, um, he coached me for most of my career, although he'd say I was uncoachable. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's a whole detailed discussion in that. But, uh, yeah, for me, just being with someone who understood what I was trying to do and when, when we got married, you know, trying to pick a date to get married, you know, that didn't screw up our seasons... You know, someone else might go, oh, why don't you want to marry me in June? And I'll be like, well, I'm not missing Swiss nationals to marry you. Where we, <laughs> we didn't even have to have that conversation because it's like, right, this, you know, basically from second week of May till October, we are not getting married. So there's lots of stuff that was great that you didn't have to negotiate your way around.
0: Yeah. And that kind of fed into also you starting a family. Um, was that talked about early on with you two about you wanting a family?
4: No, not at all. No. Uh we never talked about it until after Sydney. And then I kind of realised that I was kind of running out of time almost to think about having a family. And it was mm. quite a short conversation, which was, Are we gonna have a baby? And Ian was um like, mm, I guess so. And I thought, like, oh. And then I really wanted to do Commonwealth Games in Manchester in two thousand and two and thinking, well, if I have a baby, it's got to be before that, because actually having a baby and then trying to come back to do my fifth games, which I knew my five would be the maximum I could ever do, mm. um, the timing for that wouldn't be right. And then we genuinely had a cut-off date for being pregnant, which, you know, if we, we hadn't have got pregnant then, I'm not sure we necessarily would have had, had a baby. Um,
0: and and the, uh, so how much time did you give yourself to get pregnant in? Can you remember? Um, I think it was about eight months okay and then
4: I do remember I, I was actually at European Championships when I realized I was pregnant because really yeah and that was because I was feeling really ill and I used to I'd still drink quite a lot of coffee and I one of my training partners and I Jason I, he got me a coffee and I remember picking it up and just going oh and then thinking <laughs> and sort of actually having this sort of slightly odd conversation with Jason about I think I'm pregnant And then, you know, kind of trying to track Ian down where he was to say, I think I might be pregnant. And that was all sort of slightly a bit weird. But but, but they're the decisions women in sport take. Yeah. Which men in sport don't have to think about in in necessarily the same way. And I I remember that really difficult conversation where I rang my mum and said, Mum, I think I'm pregnant. And she was, like, horrified. And um, I remember saying, well, you know, it's okay," Because I thought she was going to be worried with my my condition because yeah I've got scoliosis my spine curves and there's lots of other things going on and she was like oh no I'm not worried about that it's just I didn't think you actually like children (laughs) and you go a bit bit late now um (laughs) so yeah it was a bit of a even though we were trying it was still a bit of a I think I did six pregnancy tests
0: really yeah and then it was like oh I am Right, because I had. Did you compete pregnant then as well? If you were you were at the games already. I did. I mean, I stopped
4: competing at about eleven weeks.
1: Okay.
4: um, Mostly because it, I, I had really bad morning. I had sort of day sickness, and I was eating okay, but I was throwing up a lot, and I just felt absolutely exhausted. So I trained all the way through, but for me, competing wasn't really what I wanted, and and. you know women have competed and they do and I think you just have to make the decision that's right for you I think I was really conscious as well that you know the way that you sit in a racing chair there's just is it leaning forward you're leaning forward and to be honest there was just a lot of pressure on my bladder yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) not comfortable not comfortable and you know I had a few accidents and you know it's all fine but um uh I was like okay I'm gonna train but I, I just I don't want the the added stress for me competing that that was sort of a bit too too much for me. The difficult bit was when I was sort of making the decision to pull out of competitions, but I hadn't told anybody I was pregnant. So I should have been competing at world championships. And I think I would have been about 16 weeks pregnant, 16, 17 weeks pregnant. And having to ring up and say, I'm not going to be at the worlds. And it's like, why? Well, it's just and like you injured, well, no, not really. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, these conversations would go, uh, um, you know, so not really having a conversation with anybody, but uh, it was a bit strange kind of withdrawing from competitions without telling people. They kind of knew, but they didn't say anything just in case something had happened and I'd lost the baby. And, you know, it's it's all those sort of difficult conversations around that yeah. time that nobody really wants to have.
0: Yeah, and, and it must be so strange sort of having a plan in your head as well of, OK, so you need to fall pregnant within this time and I'll keep training throughout and whatever, and then straight away afterwards we'll do this. It must be weird when that suddenly is a reality and now you've got to put your plan in motion almost. You know, it's that one thing planning, but it's another thing when it's actually a reality and you're doing it and it's all very real.
4: Yes. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, it felt like I had a, an alien grown inside me and I got very much I've never cried so much as when I was pregnant. And um, do you remember the TV programme Gladiators? Um, yeah. So there was one bit, I was watching a rerun and this poor woman couldn't get up the travel later at the end. And I remember it at the time it'd been the saddest thing I'd ever seen and sobbing hysterically over it. And normally I'd have been, oh, come on, get up, off you go. And so I found those sorts of things quite weird. The training all the way through, that was okay. I knew early on that I was going to have to have an elective cesarean with a general anaesthetic. So I didn't actually go to any parenting classes um, Mm -hmm. because I remember being quite busy training and doing other stuff. And thinking, oh well, how hard can it be? I mean, this is awful. I mean it's just and I, I read a book and um which told you how to bring up your baby and it was like oh, okay, fine, it'll be all right. You know, I'm really well organised and I'm and then the reality of actually having a baby, that was a shock. So we 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 took her to a training camp in Spain when she was three weeks old because nobody said to me that you kind of shouldn't or couldn't, or I mean, trying to get a passport for a, a baby that's <laughs> How old she? She was about nine days old when I took her to get a passport. Um, wow! And you know, trying to get a picture of a baby for a passport photo, <laughs> so her first passport, she was kind of slumped in the corner. Um, and I remember, yeah. So stuff like that. I mean, somebody said to me really early on, "You don't need to be the best mum in the world. You just need to be the best mum to Karis." Yeah. And and that was really important for me because I think that competitive bit you. I think sometimes the guilt you feel... I mean, there was a bit where I thought I was going to start baking bread and knitting, and um, I do remember when she was starting to eat solid food, spending hours mashing vegetables into ice cubes, and she just spat it all back at me. And then I remember thinking, do you know what? The most important bit is I spend time with her and I do things, not that I don't need to be the one who makes her baby food. I mean, that's great if you can do it, but actually... It, it it kind of didn't quite work for us in, in that way.
0: Yeah. What was, um, going back to your pregnancy, what was your pregnancy like? Because obviously you said about your mum being worried in, in terms of, you know, the physical... Well, you thought she was going to be worried yeah. about a certain thing and she wasn't. How was your pregnancy and how did people react to it when they did find out that, they, that you were pregnant? So... My friend's reaction was fairly similar to my mum. Was like, "What? Yeah, really? Are you
4: sure?" I mean, we joke. We we don't have any live plants in our house because we can't keep a plant alive. So um, uh, I can't either. <laughs> there, there was a bit of that. Um, there was a lot of questions around. Okay, how are you going to manage competing and pregnancy and being a mum? There were some people who were quite rude. So you know, I had people stop me in the street and say, "People like you shouldn't have kids." And so my response to that was, what, Welsh people?
0: Um,
4: <laughs> you know, we th- there was a, a real mix of views. The bit that shocked me was complete strangers coming and touching my stomach, yeah. which that is a bit weird and a bit strange. And then for me physically, because of my curvature in my spine, I've lost about nine inches in height, so my body's quite compact. So, I mean, what is amazing is, like, your body's ability to just cope with things like that. So Karis was eight pounds when she was born at 38 weeks. So, wow. you know, I do remember a bit early on um, having really bad heartburn and originally travelling with a bottle of medicine and a spoon and then <laughs> a couple of weeks and you just swig it out of the bottle and things <laughs> like that. Um, I remember, and I remember eating with um, not being able to fit under a table to eat, so just putting the plate of food in my stomach to eat and things <laughs> like that, which you go, really... You know, where I'd seen it before go, I'm never going to do that, and then you end up doing it. Um, the last few weeks were really hard
0: because I'd sort of had enough and it was quite hard to just do daily life things. Well, everything as well, it kind of, on your lungs and everything, it just feels so there. It's so big, it's so invasive of your body. It, I think the last couple of weeks are tough.
4: And she used to move a lot. Mm. So I did love it that the first I mean it was always lovely when she was moving because you kind of go that's really good yeah but I remember speaking at a conference and she was just doing somersaults inside me and my bump was moving from one side to the other (laughs) and some of the feedback from the conference was we didn't really listen to what she was saying because we were watching the baby move and then yeah when she used to kick me underneath my diaphragm uh that wasn't great but then there are bits you forget and if Ian ever wants to tease, and I have to be really, really clear, he is genuinely teasing me when he says this, but he'll just say to me, "Well, you didn't actually give birth; the doctor did it for you." <laughs> and you go, "Yeah, let me put a bowling ball inside you and slash it out with an eye. And yeah, it's um, he he does joke about that. But we we were really lucky; we had amazing sort of support from the doctors and healthcare and stuff, and to make sure that she was okay when she came out. And uh, yeah, but we we kind of didn't feel the need to do it a second time. One one was was good we did have this very very short conversation where you know oh i don't know what makes people think this is okay to do that but when she got to about 18 months old people started saying you have to have another one like why and it's like oh it's someone to play with what and um and we've got three goddaughters and they are amazing young women who are all older than caris but i just thought oh, i'm not sure about this and i said to him are we could have another baby and he just said no
0: so, <laughs> but also, sometimes um, it's putting it out there just to hear their response so that you can kind of go, yes, I'm so glad that we're on the same page. Like me and Tom every now and then go, we're not going to go for a fourth, are we? No, no, good. Just just checking. Just want to know. I liked the idea of having... another. I mean, Karis is amazing. I mean, adaptable,
4: incredible. She would sleep anywhere. we travel the world with her. She would just sleep on planes on the floor. She'd just look after herself from being quite young. But she didn't sleep through till she was two. And I remember thinking, what if she's the good one? Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to be pregnant the second time. I mean, we we're really lucky. Yeah. She, she's amazing. But for me, one was, that, yeah. that was, that was good.
1: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs?
2: and 365 day returns.
0: Can you remember meeting her for the first time?
2: Yeah, I remember.
4: Um, so what was really sweet cause I had a general anaesthetic and they'd said to Ian, do you want to see the baby before Fanny? And he's like, no, no, we want to see the baby together. And I remember waking up and being a bit sort of woozy cause of the anaesthetic. And all I remember she had really pointy ears and, like, Spock ears, like, really, really pointy ears. And for some reason, I was quite obsessed with how long she was. Because I kept saying, how long is she? <laughs> how, long, how long? Why won't you tell me how long she is? Like, really? <laughs> and, and then going, oh, my God, she's got Spock ears. And then the other one I remember is that she had quite a bad birthmark on the back of her head. Mm. And they think that's where she was kind of stuffed up, underneath my ribcage. cage right that was interesting because for a long time she always if she was kind of a bit grisly or didn't want to sleep if you put something on the back of her neck there she'd she'd kind of settle down and when she could kind of turn over in a cot and things she'd always crawl to the corner of her cot and oh. sort of stick her head into the corner. she's going to kill me for saying that <laughs> and stick her head into the corner of her cot because that sort of was really quite soothing for her so, I mean, she won't call
0: you for saying that unless she's still, you know, she's off at uni and still finding the corner of rooms to suit herself. I think, she, I think you're fine. Then she's fine. But yeah, I do, yeah. I, I do remember having this panic thinking, oh, this is
4: real, this is so real now. And, you know, just thinking, okay, what do we do? And that's the point I remember thinking, you really should have gone to some baby classes. You really <laughs> should have. And then the book I read, which was How to Bring Up Your Baby, whatever it's called, I didn't last the first morning doing it.
0: Well, also, it kind of, it has that thing of a one-size-fits-all and anyone who's been anywhere near a baby knows that that is, well, I would say that, but I, I don't mean that. I mean anyone who's had a baby, because I think it's very different, knows that actually that never works. Mm. What works for you and your baby would not work for your neighbours or whoever else. You find a way of working together or not working together and, and I think so many, much of the advice and stuff that's out there, it stops you listening to your own instincts and finding your own way.
4: And for us, you know, we had to be travelling, we had to be, Mm. you know, back training. I remember her being really young and learning to crawl and teaching her that you can't crawl across a white line on a track because that (laughs) means you're in the way of athletes and they're not looking for a baby. So the poor thing got dressed in fluorescent baby grows whenever we went to the track. (laughs) And she learned from a really young age that you stay outside these lines. I mean, the other one, which was really awful... It was quite sweet, so we'd go to the track and we'd, she'd take a bucket and spade with her. And she'd just sit in the long jump pit building sandcastles. Um, She's on holiday. She's just yeah. in the sand pit. And you'd be like, Let's, should, we, should we go... I think we did call it the beach for a while. And then she... I mean, <laughs> the first time we took her to a real beach, I do remember her there going... Because, <gasps> you know, it wasn't this, you know, oblong of sand. There's um, so much of it. Yeah, so... Also, I mean, just... Oh, here's another one. Um... When she was about two and a half, it was getting quite hard to get her in and out of the car seat. So, you know, she had to kind of help me do things. Mm. Um, I remember there was one time we were at a DIY place and she refused to get into a car seat. And it was one of those times where right, I'm going to teach her a lesson and I'm going to lock her in the car and I'll hide around the corner. And then someone obviously reported there was a child in the car and attended. <sighs> and the security guard came out and was like, I'm teaching her a lesson. She won't get in the car seat. And after about 20 minutes, so every time I went to the car, she'd jump out of a car seat and laugh. And <laughs> and he's like, I can't spend all my day doing this. So we opened the car and he stuck her in the car seat and just said, like, do not do that again. And she never
0: once messed me around after that. But... Really? I heard as well, I read, I don't know if you said it or if I read it, uh, that you put her in dungarees a lot for the first two years as well. To pick her up by a dungaree straps, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, and um, so we live in a
4: house and she'd sort of run up the stairs because she didn't want to go somewhere and she was like oh you can't climb stairs and I sort of went up on my backside and got her down and she you could see she was slightly sort of amused bemused by this so then she used to try and hide under our kitchen table which was much harder because coming down the stairs you can kind of hold on to the dungaree straps and you can hold on to the banister and I could get back into my chair and then you've got her where Underneath the kitchen table, it was much harder because it's much harder to hold on to a wriggling baby while I transferred from the floor back to my chair. So, yeah, yeah the dungarees, we used to put um, a retractable dog um, lead on her. And um, <laughs> and then so you could hold on to the dog lead and then yeah. she could sit under the table and you could kind of sort of gently, <laughs> I mean, pull her out. Right. You have to be quite, like, nudge her out. But, um, yeah, yeah dung- dungarees are just fab. I mean, I remember saying to her when she was about, she was about seven, you know, because people could be a bit funny with her about me being a wheelchair user and said, you know, is there anything that you think you miss out because I'm a wheelchair user? And she sort of had this sad little face on her and she nodded. And by that point, she was kind of as tall as me um, with me sitting in my chair. And she said, yeah, mummies are meant to be bigger than their daughters. Like, oh, Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, she didn't see any difference in it. She just yeah. saw that I was meant to be taller. And I said, you know, so things like holding... There were bits I couldn't do, but I couldn't hold her hand as we were walking somewhere. But yeah, I try and do it now. She's 19 and she's just mortified by it. It's like, <laughs> let <laughs> mummy hold your hand. And she's like, go away. I don't know who you are. Leave me alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Talking about adaptable, how long after the birth... Did you go back to training, Tanny?
4: I was back training uh, when she was ten days old. So uh... after a
0: C section, a C section. Oh. Were you worried about what your recovery would be like, and or any of that, even leading up to it? Were you a bit cautious? Um, definitely cautious.
4: But I mean, all the way through the pregnancy, I'd been talking to the doctors and the medical team about the fact yeah. I wanted to be back training as soon as i possibly could and they were really helpful with that in terms of you know just thinking about i mean this is quite great but but actually where the incision was yeah and they were amazing in that i mean because it was a plan so it it was planned because of medical reasons because my scoliosis and i've got exposed spine they basically made the c-section scar as small as they possibly can make it it was amazing how little space that she she came out of and then it was all part of the, sort of the planning in terms of what training I would do. So I wasn't back in full training after 10 yeah. days. So there was a plan to get back. But because I'd been active all the way through, it wasn't that I'd stopped training and I was trying to pick it up. That that was part you of... You think you healed the...
0: quicker as well because you'd been doing that training?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I've definitely... Once I'd got over the morning sickness, being active was really important just for me as much
0: as yeah. getting through the, the surgery. I mean... 10 weeks after having a baby, you are doing the London Marathon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love... What I love, <laughs> is that... So, for most people who have had cesareans, they would be like, OK, six weeks, I'm not going to drive, I'm going to do this. And then you... And, and I know it's because of the training that you put in. And I know it's the hard work and everything. But that is amazing. And then what was it like doing all that training and having Karis next to you and there watching you you know you've been planning for that course of events and then for her to actually be there you know on the sidelines as a Um, part of it
4: I do remember the night before the marathon so my mum looked after Karis so I had the best night's sleep I'd had in ages (laughs) I remember thinking um I mean I look back and you go some of it's not the smartest things I ever did you know and you would never you know I think if you're an elite athlete there are things that you can do which are different I I would never say to another mum or to oh yeah just do do a marathon 10 weeks after having a baby mm-hmm. you know you you've, you've got to be just really really aware of your body and you know we'd done a lot of testing leading up to it um to check that I wasn't going to do any long term damage you know there was yeah. there was so much that went into those decisions but also for me it was really important to have a target um because yeah. I knew I wanted to come back and compete
0: Oh well, yeah and and the juggle is really overwhelming but what you've described I think that's a really good way of almost keeping your identity because so many mums and I would say I've been in this cloud quite a lot over the last seven years you do kind of lose yourself a bit and you kind of come out a little bit later kind of going who am I what what do I do who am I without being the one who's always in charge of all these baby things Mm. and actually what you've spoken about before is how you and Ian really found a great balance so that it wasn't all on you as the mum and that actually that is a shared responsibility it's not you know it doesn't just mean you have a baby and they're therefore everything lies on you it's a it's a partnership
4: and and he was amazing in terms of I mean obviously couldn't do much about the breastfeeding but kind of sharing so much of that kind of responsibility I didn't feel it was all on me although I have to say I was (laughs) so my mum was the same so apparently when me and Sean were crying as little she never used to wake up so my dad used to have to wake my mum and I remember someone saying oh you're so in tune with your child (laughs) <laughs> and Ian used to have to elbow me and say, "The Caris is crying. And it's like, really? You no, know, you fed her three hours ago. I'm like, really? And so, yeah, there was that. But he, he was amazing all the way through. And then, you know, as she grew, you know, he stopped competing really so that I could carry on competing. And then when I had the chance to go into politics, he changed his career so that I could do that. And, I mean, lockdown's been hard on lots of people. But for me, what was amazing was that I actually got to spend a really decent amount of time at home. I I used to spend a lot of time away from home. So actually being there, the stuff that I always felt I missed out on was not the big stuff. You know, you can sort your diary so you can be there for the school plays and sports day and all those things. It was like breakfast and, you know, the evening meal and what did you do today in school? And, you know, she didn't know any different. So again, it's that parental Mm -hmm. guilt. You know, I used to get really sort of stressed out by being away. Um, But then she doesn't, no, any different. I don't remember, you know, we, we took her to the Beijing Olympics and uh, I was working there. And, um, you know, she got to see some really amazing things. She got to go to the opening Ceremony of the Olympics. We watched Tom Daly dive and all these things. <laughs> and then I remember um, her coming back home while I stayed on for the Paralympics. I know those stories they have to write about what you did in the summer holidays. <laughs> and um, her story was, um, in the summer, Mummy took me to Beijing and she made me go to the Olympics <laughs> well done, Karis. Great. I've, I've kept that. I have I have
0: that filed away. <laughs> so good. We had um, Arlene Phillips on with her um, daughter, Alana, who had just had... I mean, Alana was on. They were both in the studio. And Alana had a five-week-old baby in the studio as well. And what was really interesting, I think, talking to them, is that Arlene, as a grandma now, was kind of looking back at her time, almost seeing Alana, because... Arlene was a single mum. She was taking Alana everywhere to do her choreography and stuff. And she was almost the same as you. Like two weeks after giving birth, after a C-section, you know, Alana was in a bag. They were going. They were going to LA, I think it was, to do a video. And having seen Alana in her newborn bubble with her baby, it made Arlene kind of go, oh, it's that guilt thing again, isn't it? Or have I, did I do enough? And what was really interesting about having them both on was that Alana said, yeah, you did, because... Because of your job, you travelled everywhere with me, you know, Mm. and I think it's so easy for us as parents to kind of go, oh, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I I failed at that, I didn't do that, but we never see all the things that we do do and that we do really well and that we give them.
4: Yeah, and I I think I try to kind of keep remembering that kind of balance because it's really important. I think it's easier now she's older to think Mm. about some of that balance, but I think about, you know, some of the places we got to take Caris and, you know... she she went to Athens. She wasn't really interested in watching me compete, but she went to Beijing and London. A bit grumpy with me because I wouldn't take her to Rio, but <laughs> she, was, she was kind of at the wrong age because you couldn't really leave her on her own. But yeah. then I couldn't take her everywhere that I was working. I also kind of spent a bit of time, you know, she was growing up telling her that she was lucky that she got to do things other people didn't. So yeah. I hope I kind of got that balance right that I didn't keep telling her, you know, you're really lucky that you got to do these things because I think that's... Also, quite hard balance that you don't just tell the kids how privileged they are. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's just... I mean, she um, she, she does kayaking and um, kayak slalom, and mostly because I hate water. I think that's why she does that sport. And um, she was at a training camp, and it was in Scotland, and um, I remember saying to her, like, the deal is that, you know, you can go, but you need to ring me every day. When you get off the water, you need to tell me that you're okay because... It's called an at-risk sport, but, you know, it can be quite dangerous. And she was great for about four days, and then she didn't ring me. And then as a mum, you think, she's dead. That's it, she's drowned. Her body's been swept down the river. They can't find a body. They don't know where she... They don't realise she's... You think all about these things, and I eventually tracked her down. And she went, well, I rang you every other day. And I went, just, you, you said you would ring me. And she went, oh, they would have called you if I was dead. And I was like, but you don't...
0: I thought you were. And she went, oh... Duh. What is it like now? Because obviously, she's she's kind of flown the nest. She's in Cardiff. Did, mm. she, did she did she start in September? She did. Yeah.
4: Yeah. She's first so year. Weird
0: time. So that there's so much going on because obviously it's her leaving home for the first time, actually properly living away. But also throughout this pandemic that we're all living through as well, there must be so many things going on when that's happening. It's hard because that kind of protection instinct is still there. You kind of
4: want to protect yeah. her from things and make sure she's okay. But then there's also the balance of like she's on her own or, you know, she's yeah. not on her own, but she's away from us now. It's kind of interesting because, you know, leading up to her going away, she likes going to bed quite early and she's not really a party animal and yeah. she doesn't drink alcohol. And, you know, I was one of the... I, before she was going away, it's like, right, you need to drink alcohol at home. And she's like, Why? And and it's like because I you might. Do... I don't like it, but do it. Do yeah, it here where it's safe. Yeah, <laughs> and and then she's like, "But I'm not going to drink." I like, "And I remember saying to her, but someone could spike your drinks.'" And she's like, "Well, like even if we're allowed out anywhere, which we're not going to be, I'll I'll have a bottle of something, and I'll keep my finger over the top of the bottle." You go, "Why am I?" I'm talking to the most sensible girl in the world, and so there's bits with actually with freshers being cancelled. I think for a lot of young people. That's been a big relief. The pressure on freshers yeah. to go out and party and do all that stuff has been a bit of a relief for lots. But I try really hard not to kind of ring her five times a day. And I'm, I'm actually I'm quite good. You know, we wait for her to ring us, and I don't hassle her too much. I don't think I do, and try to give her her kind of space in in terms of what she does. But dropping her off for the first time, yeah, that was really hard. Really, really hard. Um second time it's dead easy, you know, because you know, she's fine and she's she's looking after herself and she's okay and she's got her house sorted for next year and I just think it's pretty amazing actually. But I said to her before she went away, you'll always be my baby. Yeah. You will always be my baby,
0: you know, so just get over it. So um hopefully I'm not it, too much of a pain. It must have been weird dropping her off and then weird coming home and her not being there. I keep saying to her that wherever she decides to settle, I'm going to buy the house next door. And she's <laughs> like,
4: no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I mean, it's that thing. It's, it, I love it where you can still play with our heads. You go, no, yeah. I am going to be the mother that lives next door to you. Um, yeah, but I think we've also... I mean, I think a lot of the things from my mum and dad, which was to be independent, you know, to yeah. go off and want to be somewhere else, that's really cool. I mean, because there's lots of different ways to stay in touch without us physically being in each other's pockets. Mm-hmm. It's always just that balance. What what I'd always like, which is what my parents were with us, was that there's always a place for you here if you want to come home, but actually you don't need to. And for me, that yeah. made me kind of want to go home. And um, hopefully that's what
0: we've been able to do with with Karis. How, now that she is an adult, mm. looking back at your time with her as a child, what was the most difficult bit of those first 18 years
4: yeah I, th- I think the first 18 months actually narrowing that down probably the first six to eight months yeah. just when they're so little it's so much easier when they can talk even if all they said to you is no or um <laughs> it's when you know they're crying and you don't know what's wrong that yeah. bit I found really difficult and challenging I do remember um oh, I can't remember the name for it when they're not sleeping and you're meant to kind of leave them crying Like self-settling. Yes, I remember trying to do that with her, and it was like leave her, leave her, leave her. And then we'd gone into a bedroom, and she'd projectile vomited over the whole bedroom. It was everywhere, and it was like okay, so we're not doing that again. And she'd had fish pie for tea. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah, I remember just sitting there. It was about two (laughs) o'clock in the morning, scrubbing fish pie up the carpet, thinking this is disgusting. So yeah, no, each bit's different. I mean, Mm. sort of going to school you know, all the stuff that that comes with that, you know, some of the kind of childhood things of chicken pox. And I never kind of quite understood it when my mum said it, that when you've got a child, you want to make stuff okay for them. You want to take the pain away. You want to make it okay. And then I kind of finally understood it when I became a mum in terms of you don't want to see them in any kind of pain. So yeah, there's stuff like that. But yeah, no, each bits are different. Um, Yeah. And you can't, You can't make everything okay. You know, they they have to make decisions and they have to learn some things on their own. Yeah.
0: Um, I wrote a series of letters around motherhood. Some were to my boys, some were to Tom, uh, parts of my body, uh, other parents. If you could write a letter on motherhood, who would it be to and what would it say? Um...
4: I think there'd definitely be one to me saying, just don't beat yourself up about stuff. I think it's that advice that I did get, which is, you know, you don't have to be the perfect mother. Actually, what my friend said to me is you don't need to be the best mother in the world. You need to be the best mum to Karis. Unless Ian divorces you and marries an earth mother, then you're screwed. Um, <laughs> so so I like to think of like the first bit of it, not, right. not the second. Um, yeah, so I've got another thing I remember... I'm really busy with work and Carys was hungry and um, I, me- I gave her a pot noodle and I remember her standing in the kitchen saying, but mummy, you meant to put hot water on it. I went, oh yeah. <laughs> okay, let's teach you to learn to use the kettle. I know you're six, <laughs> but you know what? You can do it safely. So I think, you know, just be really open about things. You know, just don't panic about everything. It's okay to not bake bread and to mm-hmm. sew and to, you know, to all the pressure to sew kids' name labels into all their stuff when they're little. Do you know what? A Sharpie pen on a label is fine. Yeah. Um, and I, I think for me it was like learning to let go of those things. Yeah, just keep learning to treasure the moments that that you have. And I'd probably write a letter to everyone else who told me I can't be a mum or I shouldn't be a mum and just tell them to back off and mind their own business and, and just get over it. But... Uh, it would be about those first few... months. Ma- it probably would have told myself, actually, just go to a couple of mother and baby classes. <laughs> that, you know, it might That's not have made not. any difference, but it might have made you just panic slightly less about
0: about some of those things. Um, we put so much pressure on ourselves, I think. And I, th- and I think you being an athlete as well and your drive to, to be the best, it's kind of that thing of, you know, you want to be the best parent you can be and you see all these different... You You have an idea of what that looks like. And when your version of it doesn't match up with that, it doesn't actually matter because you've found a way that works for you. Yeah,
4: and I think as also coming through sport. You meet enough, I you know, psycho parents in sport
3: yeah.
4: who, who live their life through their children. And, you know, I experienced that as growing up and then as an older athlete seeing it with younger athletes coming through. And then you see it in school. And, you know, I'd like to say to some of the parents who live so much of their life through their kids, just you know take a step back you know just because actually it doesn't make you as a parent
0: necessarily very happy well that's one reason why we have the podcast because I just think it's so important that we share moments like that so we know it's not just you know my child having a tantrum and me trying to navigate my way out of it whatever so that we know that it's a shared experience and it's not necessarily anything that we're doing wrong
4: yeah it's 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 trying to just show the balance of it isn't it that I think yeah and I'm well, there's just so many things, because I remember um, coming back on a flight, uh, I don't even know where I've been, and I was coming back into Newcastle Airport, and there was a young mum with a baby, and the baby cried the whole way, and she was very stressed, and it's like, right, give me the baby, and, you know, just take two minutes, and I'll do this, and I'll help you, and then the baby threw up everywhere, and uh, she had several bags, and nobody would help her, and... And there was some stupid rule in the airport where none of the staff were able to help her carry the baby and the bags and, and they couldn't carry a bag because she hadn't booked assistance. So we got through the airport and I said, look, I'm probably not great. I can probably carry one of your bags, but you carry the bags. I'll carry the baby. That's fine. Yeah. We'll get through. And she's like, well, what if the baby throws up again? It's like, I'm going home.
3: I'm yeah. not going anywhere
4: else. I'm fine. I've smelt a baby sick before. I'm sure I'll smell a baby sick again. Do you know what? It's... And, and she, was, she was in tears because she said, like, nobody would help me and you go that is just horrible so anyway it was fine the baby did, was a bit sick but it's like you
0: But it's that isn't it it's that those little acts and it's like you saying going over to someone and going i've been there before you know you'll get through it it is those because i've had i've had moments where people have come over and they they mean so much because it's that guilt isn't it when yeah. When people look at you and go,
4: "Oh, yeah. why can't you control your baby?" Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have a dummy? Do you not have a dummy? Do you have this? Do you have that? Do you give them that to eat? Do you, it's people are so judgmental mm. about everything, and yeah, I think sometimes just—I mean, I've to... oh, that's the thing—I've embarrassed Karis where I've gone over and gone, "Do you know what they turn into this?" You know, <laughs> and it's it's okay, <laughs> you know, because I've I've been there where. Um... We're in a shop and I wouldn't buy her a Barbie camera for four ninety nine. It's like you're not having it. And she screamed. And it's like, fine, I'll just sit just see. And I remember people walking past going, Mmm. Mm. And it's like, Yeah, and you've been through it. Oh or, or yeah. you know, well, my child's never had a time to, to Really? Yeah, I don't believe that. I just <laughs> don't believe it. So yeah, yeah, I try to I try to just sort of go, It's okay.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that means so much. Um, Tammy, I end each podcast, and we've come to the end, uh, with you finishing three sentences. Uh, so first one, being a mum means? The world to me. Since having a child, I... I've realised
4: there are so many things that don't matter in my life, and it puts so many things into perspective.
0: <laughs> and
4: I'm happy when? I'm snuggled on the sofa with Karis watching some daft film and we're just spending nice, happy time together.
0: Thank you so, so much for being the guest this week. It's been lovely to talk to you. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.